Well, we can get underway. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for the days we have before you, this moment, to be loving one another and to be enjoying each other's fellowship and to be looking at your word. Bless us in all of it, in your son's name, amen. Uh, as you can tell from the sermon notes, we are in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is one of those, it was a great book. You have those uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are these great, great books. Uh, you feel like you're going for a master's degree in Romans. Not quite sure what Hebrews is up to, and, and the other books are like with the problem people, you know, Galatians, Corinthians. Um, but Ephesians is one of those, they, they, they link together Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians uh, um, in the things that Paul covers slightly differently in each one. And I was uh, in a conversation this week, Norm uh, Wall was over and, and we were, he had some questions out of the first chapter of Ephesians. And when someone says the first chapter of Ephesians, to me, it's like saying Romans 9 to me. Now those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, theological jokes, um, people who don't hold my opinion love Romans 9. And they love to bring up Romans 9. They also like to bring up Ephesians 1. So I thought, I, I sort of, I, you know, put on my Kevlar vest and I settled in for the question out of Ephesians 1. But it wasn't about that. It wasn't, the, 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 the innocence of the question was remarkable. And we, the, but the verse that he brought up, that we started looking at, then sort of played on my consciousness over the course of the next few days. And as I lay on my side in bed last night, it wasn't the tub this time, but in my, in my bed. I said, you know, that Ephesians thing was pretty interesting. I don't have a sermon for tomorrow. And of course, until I got up, Bill had, had sent me something online about uh, some bishop saying Christians had invented hell, or the church, or something like that. And asked me, you know, said sermon topic, but I was already prepared with Ephesians. So what was the... Uh, what was the deal? What was, the, what, what was so intriguing? You see it on the left-hand side, Ephesians 1, verse 9. Now, it's right in the middle of a, of a passage that theologians or theologically-minded people love to jump into and start to have arguments about, uh, divide the church over. But he says in verse 9, For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I don't know if you have the experience I have that when somebody reads a Bible passage, other Bible passages sort of trigger, you know, you sort of, Oh, that sounds like the one in But look at what it, it, it seems like this is important stuff. 
right? He has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will. His purpose, his plan to unite all things in him in heaven and on earth. It's, it's everything. Everywhere you can look in Christ a unification of all things as the purpose of God. And, and you almost want to run out and buy your coexist bumper sticker immediately. Is that... Is that what we're thinking? Some people look at this and they don't see the they don't see the mystery stated. They don't see the plan or the purpose described, but they think it's this unity thing. So ecumenicism that okay, let's drop all our standards about everything so we can uh, be in the same group with everyone. But God has done this in Christ. He has set forth His purpose in Christ. Well, what happened in our discussion this week, and I forget what day it was, um, what happened in our discussion is that this verse triggered the next one there on the left-hand side out of Colossians, chapter 1. This is right at the end of, of uh, Paul going on about he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. And right at the end of it, he says in verse 19... For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. A little more information thrown at you, but you kind of got the feeling here's Paul, same author, talking about uniting all things, reconciling to himself all things, things in heaven or in earth. So he's saying, yeah, probably he's still, he, he, this is his sort of, his Christianity. He's talking out his Christianity to you. For one thing, I'd like you to listen to the way he speaks of his Christianity so that you would choose to speak of it in a more Pauline way than speak of it in a more evangelical way. Something bigger on the page than what's in normal church situations. So think about considering Christianity the way Paul does, but then say, okay, what is it that Paul is talking about? We got the mystery of his will. His purpose, his plan, it seems to have unification as the end result, reconciliation, making of peace, but it's making peace by the blood of his cross. It's according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, not in Christ and in Krishna and in Buddha and in Muhammad, it's in Christ. It's peace, yes, but it's according to the blood of his cross. So what is this? What's the... Now you get some, as you look at these passages, the Ephesians 1 passage, if you go back over it, and we're not going to do that now, but you have this 
laying down of what God did in Christ in Ephesians 1. And that passage sort of summed up the purpose of his will in Christ that what he is trying to do with us in Christ. Same is true in the Colossians. It's a He made all the principalities and powers. So when he says things in heaven and things on earth, he means things in heaven. Like you on earth, sentient things in heaven that have been in rebellion against God, reconciling to himself all things, whether in heaven and on earth. But the key of it is by the blood of his cross. That's how the peace is made. So we want to get to a better understanding as you you march through Ephesians. And some people, well, you're right. Paul is, tends to have a run-on sentence that he changes his mind three times within the sentence about what his topic is. And so you can get lost. You can be down a paragraph later and go, where am I? And you have to go back and look for the, um, look for the intentional remark. Like even the Ephesians 1 passage In verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you then jump down to verse 9, it says, For he has made known to us. That is why he is blessed. There's a bunch of information in between the two, but it's almost like the sentence is carried on at this point. Blessed be God, for this has happened. The purpose of his will has happened in Christ, and that mystery has has come to pass. Those were the inaugural verses. And we're back in Ephesians chapter 2. When you begin to realize he's building on this thematic statement of making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconciling, uniting the mystery of his will. What is the purpose of God on earth? We're Christians. We should know what the purpose is. We should know why we're doing stuff. Therefore, remember, this is verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. Ah! If I don't just read one verse, or I don't just read the verse in light of a question I brought to the text, because Ephesians 1 is like a landmine city for people who are bringing pre-asked questions. So what is... what is he creating? He's talking about the mystery of his will, the purpose of God in Christ, and then... He says, I'm going to make peace by the blood of his cross. And then he starts talking to the Gentiles about how they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, verse 14. You think he's still talking about what he said in chapter 1? Yes. It's an idea that he has to unite things a certain way. And it's going to be in Christ because everything else is going to fail denominationally, theologically, 
uh, politically, uh, football fans, doesn't matter, you will never get everyone on the same page. If you think the uniting is going to be by you being smart enough to write up a great argument for whatever it is you believe, and you're going to get everybody on the same page, we're all going to agree and want to be great and it'll be utopia, well, you know, the lion will lay down with the lamb. At the time of St. Paul, where the church had barely been formed, Christ is saying, this is what happened to you. It has happened. Your relationship with these people and your relationship with the people in the other churches in town who know the Lord Jesus Christ, has, peace has been made with them in Christ, by the blood of his Christ. And we have to remember, we're mostly Gentiles. Any Jews here? Caleb's got some vague amount of Judaism somewhere in his... Uh, sure you do, Kenny. Um, uh, the, yes, that, that Ethiopian sect of, of Judaism. We're all Gentiles. Even in the first century, the Gentile church in Ephesus is having to be told, remember, this is what happened to you. You were in a state of paganism that was so grave and great and complete, without hope, without God. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. We're talking about the uniting that's happening in Christ according to the mystery of his will, the purpose of God, is so that by removing the, um, you might say, the causes of hostility, which would be the law of the Jews in one case. He's removed the law with his commandments and ordinances, and he's created one new man called the Christian. It is no longer a messianic Jew. You don't get to be a messianic Jew. If you want to be a messianic Jew, you're just asking for the Lord Jesus Christ to descend from heaven with the cry of command and the archangel's trumpet and slap you across the face. Because the point is, the purpose is, the blood of Christ broke down the hostility and for you to go, no, I am a messianic Jew. He's coming. He's going to hurt you bad. Because he wanted to remove hostility, not set up the things, but tear down the way things the people were, and saying in Christ, in the purpose of his will, in the mystery that is Christianity. To reconcile us, verse 16, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. You know how bad it gets in the Middle East. Somebody looks sideways at a Koran, a nation flips out. People, and it's not just the Muslims, Christians, people who claim Jesus Christ, get all blasphemy-oriented. What are you doing? You're blaspheming. We're not, we're not those sorts of people. 
We're not tacking out a territory that's ours and saying, we're going to fight you over this. If you demand something of us, we'll give it to you. If you'll hit us, we'll let you hit the other side of us. We're called in this wonderful mystery. We're not called to be, you know, pacifists. We're called to be at peace. Pacifists are just as ugly a theology as every other theology. They could be so annoying. You just want to punch them. It's a kind of counterintuitive. You know. You're a pacifist, are you? It's like being a vegan. You know, you just want to, you want to hurt somebody. Crossfit, vegans, pacifism. But Jesus Christ is here to make a kind of peace. It would seem that we ought to remember as Gentiles what this is all about. That's not just a throwaway line about Jesus died for our sins. This is the mystery. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. To begin, if you walk through the early part of Ephesians, it's like Paul's putting on the backpack and putting it on you to say, let's go on a little hike down the road called Christianity, where you will learn what it is about. Where you want to remember what it is about. That the world, the whole world, all people groups, had access to the Father in one spirit through him. That's why it's so important in chapter 1 that it says, in Christ, in the beloved, in the Lord, in this, in that, in him, in him, in him. It says, in him, in some way, 13 times in the first 12 verses. Because it's in him. His work on the cross. It's not in our theology about him. It's in him. He is our peace. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, what you're looking at is Paul's, Paul has to grab the ancient world with the antipathy the Jews had for all Gentiles and the Gentiles' paganism and say, you know, Jesus Christ, if you realize, this is Romans, if you realize you're all sinners, all of you, Jew and Gentile, you realize God's path to resolving this is faith, and the message that you believe is the gospel of Jesus Christ, so making one new man, called the Christian. You've got to recognize that, and it's got to bring an end to the hostilities. And we're constantly running through Christian history, seeming like laying a little you know, uh, traps of hostility against other believers because of, not because you believe something distinct, but the way you think about it. You don't see Christ as ending the hostility. 
making one man in the place of two. Knowing that our standing religiously is not how much you agree with me. That's how people mostly function, right? If you join the group, the church, the theology, whatever, you will then get along with the people who hold that. That's how the Gentiles work. That's how the Jews work. That's how the world is. Yes, if I agree with Democrat principles, I will become a Democrat. Republican, Republican. Methodist, Methodist. But Jesus came so that someone who's a Baptist can be joined to a Methodist. Someone who's a Democrat can be joined to a Republican. And it's not because one of them isn't right. One of them might be. But that's not what we're about. We're about removing the dividing wall of hostility because who you are isn't defined by what you agreed with. Who you are is who you've come to know, who has forgiven your sins, what the gospel did to you. Something entirely different than your theology about the gospel. You have been built into this thing together by God, by his grace. Now chapter 3 opens up with, for this reason, because of this, you've been marching through chapter 1 and chapter 2, that in Christ, a great mystery of reconciliation of people to people, not the, the whole world, not some promise in a universalist sense, that everybody's going to get along because of Jesus someday. No. Once we find out what the purpose is, we'll know what the ground of the, of the peace will be, what the uniting will be based on, what the reconciliation is done by. We know it's by the blood of his cross. But is it going to be done in some sort of millennial, in the good sense of the word, the millennial fashion, the lying, laying down with the lamb, swords being beaten into plowshares, that sort of thing? Are you waiting for that? Or is something standing in your life that has given you this peace already? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how, listen to this, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Oh goody, you say, rubbing your hands together. I was waiting for this back from chapter 1, where he said, the mystery of his will. I need to know, for me to stand up on a podium and go, this is the purpose of God. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is it. It's nice that he got to, within a few paragraphs, he said, you can perceive my knowledge of the mystery, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, get, get, get to it, get to it, get to it. He's, like, he's, he's got all these caveats for these. Oh yeah, people didn't know this before. People did not know this before. Whatever your theology of the Old Testament, include that in it. They did not know this before. This mystery, this thing... That the purpose of God to unite man 
reconcile things in heaven, things on earth to God is through this mystery. But then he says, it's been made, it hasn't been made known, but it's now been made known to us. Verse 6, that is, oh thank you, that is how the Gentiles are fellow heirs. What? When we say Jesus died for all men, it's another throwaway theology line. Some people will disagree with that, but, but when you say that, that's sort of okay. You don't feel like it's the, you know, clasp your pudgy hands together and, and, and squeal with satisfaction. Because, of course, we're all Christians and we're all Gentiles. We don't even think of ourselves as Gentile. You know, Gentiles have been Christians for so many millennia, well, two, um, so many centuries um, that it's become old hat to us. But for Paul, a Pharisee, saved by this direct encounter with the grace of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he's had to force him to, to rub the dog's nose in his poop. And that's what Christ did to Paul. And now he believes that this mystery, how could it be, the average Jew said to himself, how could it be that a Gentile could be one of the people of God without becoming a Jew? How the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you say to yourself, well, I'm getting, I'm getting filled in here that this whole thing is really suggesting... You say, well, how can we just start making Gentiles important again and Jewishness important again so we can understand the feeling that Paul had? But what is it when he's talking about this, this is opened up to the Gentiles, it's not because Gentileism was important or there wasn't enough Gentile diversity or representation and Title IX had to work enough Gentiles into the church so that we'd feel good about ourselves. He, it was sort of like, this is a non-starter now. It's not that he wants a church with Jew and Gentile in it. He doesn't want a church with Jew and Gentile in it. But I thought he wanted us to get along by making you not Jew or Gentile. In Christ you have been made one new creature instead of two. This gospel reaches down to your essential self and, and way past what he says in Romans 9 about bodily descent. God does not care about bodily descent, the Gentiles or the Jews. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's not Gentileism, it's Christism. He's not preaching how great it would be to have you Gentiles in the church, trying to make you feel special, giving you the ribbon at the fair so that you feel like you're just like a regular folk. 
And sure, you dress funny, not like a good Jew, but we like having you around because we can point to you in the brochures saying, see, we have some Gentiles. Now, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ, not the wonderfulness of your diverse congregation. We have a slight Jew, we have a Sri Lankan, we have a Nigerian, some Irish. Just saying. What else do we have? Anything special? Some half Japanese. They're more Japanese than you're Jewish. A Scotsman. It's not the unsearchable riches of Scotsmen. Though there are quite a few. <laughs> it's of Christ. That's what it was the fact that I could talk to them about Christ. Because what it is, is not a plan for diversity that is going to make us coexist together, and that's the unification, that's the reconciliation, that's the peace, where we take our distinctions and learn to get along together. No. We become something new by Christ, and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, in God who created all things, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Remember, he said in chapter 1, things in heaven and things on earth. This is, the, the, what's going on when he, when he had that things in heaven and things on earth out of Colossians? It was right at the end, whether thrones, dominions, or principalities, or authorities. God is serious about who is going to see what this mystery works like. And even the angels, even the gods, even those in rebellion against him in the heavenly places, he wants to reconcile to himself. He wants to have manifested the church the eternal purpose of God in Christ. That every man... Not so that we can have every kind of man, but that every man can have faith. And faith gets God's attention. Believing to him, all who believed and received him, he gave the power to become children of God. What's that? Fam There's a famous verse in John 3, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a great verse. There's a reason it's a great verse. It's talking about the mystery that is Christ. When we say that flippantly, kind of like faith is so, you, you can get a sign cut out of tin at Bed Bath & Beyond that says faith that you can put above your refrigerator. We all know about, no we don't, we don't think about it, we don't remember this is a glorious thing, that God has taken all of the war in this world, all of the antipathy, all of the I'm right and you're wrong, or I'm this way and you're that way, and I'm a Scotsman and you're an Irishman, and they, those don't meet. I'm a Jew, I'm a Gentile. Because we've been, it's been decided that it's going to be about something else for the Christian. 
This was according to the eternal purpose. This is a key verse. If you read this verse on the heels of reading uh, Ephesians 1, where you're, you're wondering about the view that all these in hymns in the beloved, in Christ, is it really that important? Or are you just trying to find a way out of those difficult, sort of determinist-sounding passages? Well, maybe. Maybe I am. But read this verse. This was according to the eternal purpose. Remember it said that in Ephesians 1.9, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, the mystery of his will. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom the eternal purpose of God is realized in Christ and if I'm looking at him, because it's realized in him, in whom, what does it say? We have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. So the in the beloved, in him, in Christ in chapter 1, go back and read through it and go, you know, that's where it's happening. It's in Christ, in whom I have great things, the blessing of God, because I have had faith in him. This is the mystery that everyone doesn't have to look at themselves and go, you know, frankly, I, I really wish I could join the people of God, but I'm from Holland. I said, is that, is that the Jim Gaffigan thing? There are two types of people I can't stand. Intolerance and the Dutch. That was Austin Powers. Austin Powers? Okay. Good thing I didn't know who that said that. This is the wonder of it. And when we stop thinking, we start trying to arrange peace through other means. We start getting a really cool, you know, I've got a really cool doctrine, a group of doctrines. I don't tell many people what they are. But wouldn't it be neat, you know, I could write them up in an like, official form, and you could sign it? Wouldn't that be cool? We'd all get along then. And down through Christian history, that's exactly what they've done. It sounds stupid to say it, but they've done it. I'll just write it up here, and you will agree with me. We will have unity. We'll have oneness of mind. Some people love to do that both on the giving end and the receiving end. People love to have someone else in charge of their mind because they really don't want to be bothered with using it. They'd like their church to tell them what to think, how to raise their kids. But this whole thing, this whole thing we're in is forgetting those distinctives because of faith in Jesus Christ. You and Christ, because of your sin, is death. Your sin is death. We have boldness and confidence because my sin has been carried by his death. So I ask you not to lose heart over the suffering, what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. People would rather step back into their strident denominationalism because that makes them feel more normal. 
more like regular folk. Well, I just don't get along with you because I'm a Methodist and you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or whatever it is you are. I don't mind if you hold a Presbyterian notion of the faith. God bless you. But your faith is not about that. It's for our faith is in one Christ, not distinct doctrines. I believe different doctrines, but that's not the faith that saves me. It's not my faith in Evan Wilson's peculiar arrangement of things. It's faith in Christ. And I, if, I, if I stop to remember this, what the purpose and the mystery, how wonderful. The Gentile mission is what he, Paul described it as, which means that faith of the individual is powerful and God has offered to things in heaven and things on earth in whatever degree you can imagine, but that's what we're representing. That faith brings people to God and creates the person that matters. That's the unity, that's the peace, that's where it belongs. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What he's just been saying, chapter 1 through halfway through 3, for this reason, I fall on my knees before God. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Did that begin to resonate with you? Since chapter 1, verse 9, everything in heaven and on earth being united. And this message of faith creating for everything in heaven and on earth being united in Christ that's why he says that every family every family that's the distinction it doesn't matter if you're Dutch God still loves you because you're still a man you still sin you still need the grace of Jesus Christ he's making a new thing not making you more, you know, your old thing with you learning to get along better with people. You think of yourself as a Christian, not as a Scotsman. That's a hard thing to give up. Every family in heaven on earth is named for him. This is all his. He bought it on the cross. And faith in him by all men unites them with Christ. In the blood of his cross, my belief in Christ unites me with the rest of you. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. This is not going on by us collecting around a statement of faith as good as mine is, collecting around a statement of faith. It's us individually, each inner man, each inner woman is being faced with choices about what they think of Christ. Do you bow your knees before the Father because this wonderful truth that belief, we skipped over the passage in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It was right before the portion we read there in verse 11. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. That was verse 8 and 9. Verse 10 interceded, and then boom, we are into the passage we covered. 11, we know what this is. Remember what this is. Know that the peace of God in Christ for you getting along with your fellow Christians, whatever the denomination may be, whatever their theology may be, is that we have walked in faith to Christ and had him cover our sins. Because all of us are named under God because of Christ. And it's going to be happening in your inner man. So making peace. 
Dividing wall of hostility torn down. If I have a dividing wall of hostility, I've erected it. Your inner man has not meditated, has not remembered, has not looked on this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Listen to that. Your inner man, your faith, your love, and comprehension of this on every axis. It, that you're beginning to realize that this is a world, this is a new man, that you're, you're looking at things differently than common men. And then it says, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. To know that which surpasses knowing. And that you may be filled with the fullness of God, which he echoes in the Colossians passage. The fullness of God. That's what Christians are supposed to be walking around with. That's what Christians are supposed to be. Instead of fighting with each other, and again, it's not because we're disagreeing with each other. I disagree with most of you. It's just a, a thing of mine, I guess. I'd like to be right. But why, why would we not get along? Well, because it's either you're going to agree with me to get along with me, or heaven's got to be made better by the Holy Spirit of God. Heaven has to be made into a different thing that he does share with you in spite of your different academic or philosophical considerations. To know the love of Christ, the love of Christ. To know, to comprehend this mystery on every axis. How much of your thought have you given to your salvation? Filled with his fullness. Then it says in the benediction, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. You wonder how this is going to happen? It's amazing how much happens to you how much more happens to you a Christianity that is happening in you that you feel like you can't keep up with. That you're, that you're bowing your knees before the Father because of this great thing called the faith in Jesus Christ, the offer of God to all families of the earth, that we would be brought to grace and holiness through him. That's going to be accomplished by the power of God in us. And it's going to be doing things. But it takes us bowing our knees before the Father. It takes us having... The, because the key is the faith. The key is, the mystery is, all men have access to Christ and God because it's now faith. You can't then stop having faith. That you may, he may dwell in your hearts through faith... That will root you and ground you in love. And when I'm there, when you're on your knees saying, thank you, Lord, for this salvation, for this life, for my believing friends, he's going to start doing far more than you ask or think about in your life. It's by his power to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We wonder, the wonder of your purposes in Christ, stepping into a world that is constantly at war, constantly battling over who owns what territory, who wins what argument. Lord, we'd ask that you would have us bow our knees before your Son because we've been given access to you in faith. That we'd be preaching faith. We'd be eager to remember all these things that we have in your Son, that our fellowship with each other here would be richer and better and more caring every week. Thank you in your Son's name. Amen.